0: Our text for today will be in. Uh, we'll be resuming now in Colossians chapter three, uh, starting in verse one. You can turn there now. We were. We'll pick up where we left off a couple weeks ago. If you remember the last time that we were studying together, the Apostle Paul was cautioning us not to get bogged down with a bunch of religious nonsense. Religious nonsense for the Colossian Christians consisted of practicing the Old Testament law that we learned in chapter 2 was a mere reflection of the glory that was going to be in Jesus Christ. These Jewish, Jewish rituals, though important, were pointing us to the Messiah. They were a shadow of the reality that was going to be realized through Jesus Christ. Concerning the Mosaic law, Ignatius made a statement. I don't know if you remember or perhaps if you're familiar with Ignatius. Uh, He was one of the early church fathers. Polycarp, Clement, and Ignatius were three of the primary early church fathers who were discipled by an apostle. Ignatius was a friend and a disciple of the apostle John. And later after John's death, he became then Bishop of Antioch. So Ignatius spent extensive time with the Apostle John, and in one of his letters, Ignatius wrote this. Ignatius wrote, "'Do not be deceived by strange doctrines or antiquated myths, since they are worthless. For if we continue to live in accordance with Judaism, we admit that we have not received grace. Therefore, becoming his disciples, let us learn to live in accordance with Christianity.' It is utterly absurd to profess Jesus Christ and to practice Judaism. So Ignatius confirms what the apostles taught. That returning to the Mosaic Law is absurd. There's a book called Hebrews, where if you read that book all in one sitting, you'll see this overarching theme that whoever that author was, we can only speculate Uh, but he was a close associate to the apostles, perhaps one of the apostles. It is not named who the author is of Hebrews. But that individual is encouraging them, do not return to where you came from. It has been fulfilled, our salvation has been fulfilled through the Messiah. So we don't go back. Equally preposterous, we find Paul telling us at the end of Colossians chapter 2, is the nonsense of following man-made traditions and fabricated religions that are a substitute and even a barrier to a true relationship with Jesus Christ. He lists worshiping angels, seeking supernatural visions, and legally abstaining from certain things by rules that are nowhere found in the Scripture. All these were in accordance with the teaching of mere man. Paul says this type of foolishness may appear on the surface to be very very religious but he informs us at the end of chapter 2 that they're elementary they're basic they're baseless it's false religion so if we are not to get bogged down bogged down with all this nonsense what are we supposed to do paul what do we do now what Well, in chapter 3, he is now going to begin over the next chapter and a half to give us some very practical instruction. He doesn't only now tell us what not to do, he tells us what to do. That's some good stuff. We now can move on in this letter to some very practical advice for Christian living. If I'm doing my job, you all ought to be able to leave here today and say, I know what I was supposed to do from that text. I know when I leave here what my next steps are. Then it'll just be simply up to you whether you want to follow them or not. So let's begin by reading our text for today. It'll be chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. It says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ... There's a lot of argument and contention here among theologians whether this should say if you've been raised up in Christ or since you've been raised up in Christ. I'd say since we are here in a mixed group, possibly there are people who do not know the Lord amongst us. Many of us do. Maybe not all of us. So let's use if. If you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Will you pray with me? Lord, we are excited. We are anticipating your return, Lord God. We we know you are coming, and in the meantime, you encourage us to seek heavenly things. Lord, that's a difficult task. In a world that is so busy, Lord, and one that is so much of a struggle, it's easy to get consumed with what's going on here. It's easy to get consumed with our difficulties, our struggles, our lusts, Lord, our pride, and take our eyes off what's most important. And those, Lord, are the things above. Encourage us and strengthen us, dear Lord, to seek you, and to honor you in all we do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Concerning things above, and I mean this in a physical sense, I'm in constant amazement at God's creation and how he instituted laws of physics that consistently act predictably. Isn't it wonderful that we can study creation and All the effects in the universe, and they're predictable. God gave us governing principles, laws of nature, by which we can understand the world around us. We don't live in a planet of chaos. Thankfully, it's a creation of outstanding order. Things work, things are not random and pointless. All this did not come through some random Big Bang. That's a different sermon for a different day. When it does come to the laws of physics, however, nothing is more consistent than gravity. Gravity is everywhere, and it behaves the same throughout our universe, both within the atmosphere of the earth and in outer space. Gravity is a property of all matter, and as all of you good middle school students know, everything has gravity that has mass. It doesn't matter whether it's a feather or whether it's a rock or whether it's a person or an airplane. Every particle, every piece of matter that has a mass exerts a field of gravity. Only its measurable mass affects this rate of gravity. As you stand on the ground and... You're standing on the earth. You are pulling on the earth with exactly the same ratio that it's pulling on you. It's just a whole lot bigger. So it wins. Whether you can sense it or not, every material object around you is pulling toward you. Or pulling you toward it. So the next time you sit in that recliner and your wife looks at you with that cross eye and you reach for that remote, you can say, I didn't mean to do that. (laughs) Material objects pull us towards them. Since the earth is the greatest object of mass that is near us, it wins. Everything in our atmosphere is drawn to the earth. And Sir Isaac Newton said, what goes up must come down. Man's been attempting to defy gravity probably since the very beginning. We've sought to launch weapons and arrows through the air leap high like Air Jordan and jump farther than our competitors in the Olympics we use jet packs and rocket ships and airplanes and all kinds of things to overcome gravity's effects but our natural tendency is to stay down we typically sit down we typically look down that's why when someone tells you look there's the good your blimp. You all fall for it. But you didn't all fall for it. We are always looking down. We don't tend to naturally look up. There's a physical gravitational pull from all objects around us. You cannot see it, but it's a fact. But there's also another gravitational pull that draws us to material objects as well. It's not the physical one. It's a spiritual one. The Oxford Dictionary defines gravitate to move toward or to be attracted to a place, a person, or a thing. Because of our sinful nature, our minds and our hearts tend to gravitate towards material matter. We want stuff. Our thoughts naturally tend to gravitate towards physical objects. Food, drink, clothes, money, Perhaps a home, a car, a boat. Jesus knew this. That is why He instructed us in the text that I read earlier from Matthew to not worry about them. He didn't say you shouldn't have them. You can't have any of them. He said, Don't be worried. Don't be distracted by those material things that demand your attention. Instead, attracted to god jesus said seek ye first his kingdom and all his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you seek god's kingdom first jesus is telling you to defy the gravitational pull that material world places on your heart your mind your time and your resources The Apostle Paul gives us this exact same advice in our text today. He says we need to aim high. In order to defy the gravitational pull of the material world, we need to aim high. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, if you've been co-resurrected with Him, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Paul knows that your mind is going to naturally gravitate towards material possessions. That's not entirely without merit. We need sustenance to survive. But considering our sinful nature, we're not only drawn to items to sustain us. Our flesh is drawn to sinful pleasures as well we gravitate towards and can be consumed by them that's why later in verse five paul will command us next week consider our bodies dead to a whole laundry list of sins that he will give us but first today we need to get our priorities straight we set our minds our thought life on the things that are above these are the spiritual heavenly things Evangelism, outreach, service, love, worship, trust. Opposed to the earthly sensual cravings. Because of our natural gravitation to the material world and its and belongings, we need to aim high. So how do we do that? Here are some principles. For an illustration, some of you have probably pursued open field hunting or marksmanship. I expect that Mark T could probably lend a lot of advice on this. So you understand the effects of the Earth on a speeding bullet. Gravity sucks that bullet down over a relatively short distance. I typically sight in a rifle for deer hunting at about 100 yards. But this is actually a very short distance compared to those who do competition shooting where they sight in their rifles to hit accurately at 1,000 yards. And they will place 60 consecutive rounds into an object the size of a pie plate at 1,000 yards. It's over half a mile. Now, there are variables to account for in these situations. Bullet velocity, wind direction, wind speed, elevation, but there's one predictable con- constant, and that's gravity. A shooter knows there's going to be a consistent drop due to gravity. So what's that shooter always inclined to do? He aims high. He needs to aim, aim high all the time. The professional shooter cultivates an instinct to always remain high, uh, aim high. It would be by comparison unthankful unthinkable for that man to come to a competition and purposefully aim low. Simply wouldn't happen. Jesus and the Apostle Paul know that there's going to be a predictable and consistent drop to your spiritual life due to your sinful nature and your desire to gravitate towards the world. You and I know that will happen too. It happens to you. It happens to me. So Jesus and Paul both command you and me to be aware And to compensate for it. Paul says, keep on seeking the things above. This is a command of persistence. The same term is used in Matthew 18, where Jesus describes a good shepherd who leaves his 99 sheep to go over and seek that one that is lost. He searches for it. It's persistent. He also uses it in Luke chapter 15 with the story of the woman who had 10 silver coins and she lost one and it said that she went and she searched for it until she found it and she rejoiced. It was persistent she kept on seeking it we need to keep seeking the things above you can't aim high just once and think that you have defied gravity of the world we must persistently aim high every day and every time how would you do that? You and I need to keep recalibrating our sights constantly. Competition shooters recalibrate for distance, wind direction and speed, weather conditions, etc. And we each need to recalibrate every day for what we're going to face. No day is going to be the same. Some are going to hold financial distresses. Others will be a physical crisis. Some relational problems, and other emotional pitfalls. You always have to adjust your sights to face the day. But you can never forget to aim high. The gravitational pull is going to be certain, it's a fact of our lives, and it's a fact of the sinful nature. So, how do we spiritually calibrate high? How do we keep focused on the heavenly things above? We calibrate on multiple planes and levels. We do it personally and intellectually. We do so physically. We also do it corporately. We're going to discuss these three today. Let's first consider personally and intellectually. This would be an investment that you make on your own. A competitive marksman... In order to be successful, would need to love shooting. I can assure you that with even, without even prodding, that he or she is going to spend a lot of personal time studying his procedures. He's going to read literature on the subject. He's going to study the diagrams, the shape, the maps. And he's going to become exceedingly familiar with his weapon of choice. To be a healthy Christian, you and I need to invest time personally alone with God spiritually and intellectually to have spiritual success and remain focused on the things above you and I need to love Jesus you have to love him enough to spend your time in the Bible studying you also have to become familiar with your weapon scripture calls the Bible the sword of the spirit Few Christians know how to safely handle it. We become one-line jugglers rather than masters of the context. Why? Because understanding the context takes an investment of personal time and intellect. People, unfortunately, would rather aim low, watch two and a half men and burp over a beer, than to aim high for Jesus Christ. You need to privately be in God's book. And you should have other resources such as prayer devotionals, a reputable Bible commentary, and uh, a good uh, study Bible works for that. Even some video series are extremely helpful. One of my favorite activities myself is to listen online to sermons of the great preachers of today and yesterday that are recorded and put on your smartphone. You can do that while jogging or working in the yard or at the gym, anywhere you go. I know Pastor Weiler does a lot of that as well. It's very easy. And you can continuously be calibrating as you're listening to these great men of the faith. When you weave a combination of these devotional practices through your day and your week, it keeps your mind focused on the things above. It helps you to keep aiming high instead of aiming for the gutter. Personal prayer and worship is also essential. Listen to what the Gospel of Luke tells us about Jesus. He says, But the news about Jesus was spreading even further, and large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. Slipping away by yourself to pray. Jesus sometimes found that to be a higher priority than teaching or healing. Perhaps you ladies, and and maybe a few of the masculine men that are here today, remember a movie that was called Love Comes Softly. It had Catherine Heigel and Dale Midkiff. Catherine Heigel plays a woman who is a widow and she is with child. And uh, she's being courted by a man who is uh, named Clark, I believe. So the woman, Catherine Heigl, is Marty. She's being courted by this farmer. The setting is around the 1800s. And she doesn't want much to do with him. Well, anyhow, Clark is a man's man. He has this place set up on the countryside on the hillside where he has a bench made out of a tree. It's picturesque, overlooking a valley, overlooking trees and nature. And Clark will retreat to this area to pray and to worship God. Well, one of these days in the scene, Marty decides she's going to go find out where he's going to. She doesn't quite understand what's going on. So, a few minutes after he leaves, she follows up behind. And she finds him sitting there alone, worshiping out to God and singing, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. It's a wonderful scene of a man who wants to worship his God with personal time and prayer. If uh, you get the opportunity to watch that, Love Comes Softly, uh, I'd suggest maybe renting that and getting it after you listen to Pastor Gerald preach tonight. Go home, get your big bag of Swedish fish and chocolate and sit down with the wife and watch Love Comes Softly. Man, you'll thank me later. To aim high and to be spiritually in tune with God, to be used for His purposes, we need to privately seek the things that are above. Study time, some kind of combination of devotional. Next, to stay heavenly minded and to keep seeking the things above, I suggest you recalibrate your life physically. In competition shooting, You cannot succeed if you're not physically disciplined. Your vision needs to be sharp. Your thoughts need to be clear. Your breath needs to be controlled. And if you shoot while navigating an obstacle course, you need to have endurance. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way then that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way, Paul says, as not without aim. I box in a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it a slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Remaining focused on the things above requires physical discipline. Your flesh is going to gravitate towards the recliner. In evangelicalism, we far too often overlook the physical disposition. But here's the problem. When we become lazy and sedentary for any reason, it could be a lack of discipline, it could be overeating, it could be drugs, alcohol, it could be just simply not being disciplined, you and I would ultimately get down on ourselves. It happens. Why is that a problem? Is it because God wants you to have your best life now? That's what one author said. I don't think he wants us to have our best life now. I think actually that he wants us to have our best life later with Jesus Christ. But I do believe he wants you to have a better life now. When we become lethargic, our spiritual life suffers immensely. We become depressed. Instead of defying gravity and thinking about Christ and evangelism and discipleship and the things above, we tend to gravitate towards sin. We want to feed our pleasures. This leads to an earthly, carnal life, which can cause us to overindulge even more in sin, possibly your sin of choice, and continue that downward spiral. A sedentary life creates an empty mind. It lends to carnal television, internet pornography, lustful pursuits, and eventually sexual infidelity. It's all downhill from there, man and women I don't think it's merely coincidence in Proverbs 6 where God rebukes the sluggard for his laziness that in the immediate subsequent verses God provides a description of a perverted man idleness and laziness do not lend themselves to heavenly thoughts but earthly carnal desires God speaks in the same manner to women in First Timothy chapter 5, verse 13, Paul expresses concern for women who might fall into a situation where they don't have enough productive work to keep busy. He says, at the same time, they also learn to be idle. As they go around from house to house, and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies, talking about things not proper to mention. When you get a lot of idle time, you'll turn your life south you'll start to gravitate towards earthly things. Just kind of popped in my head this morning about that phrase that we hear. Um, It goes, uh, cleanliness is next to godliness. Now, I hope you all don't think that occurs in the Bible. It doesn't. But I was thinking about my mom. She's always been a very clean housekeeper. She raised six kids. She kept things in order. And she was a wonderful housewife she was always cleaning, always busy she'd keep the windows clean she'd keep our clothes clean she would get us to where we needed to go on time she was a woman who worked hard and was very busy she also had another characteristic she didn't mind other people's business she didn't get involved in places she didn't need to be involved she's a woman who was more inclined to godliness she loves the Lord today and she's still busy uh, i got a story about that. I'll tell you some other time. Um, about dad. Uh, if we want to aim high and defy the gravitational fo- pull of sinful behavior, adopt a dis- uh, Excuse me, a disciplined lifestyle. Stay fit and work hard with your hands. This can keep both your mind and your body out of the sewer. Finally, let's take a few moments to discuss the importance of a meeting corporately. You'll not find a successful marksman who exclusively trains in a vacuum. You'll find he belongs to shooting clubs. He enjoys sharing and receiving wisdom from other marksmen. His enthusiasm will display itself at competitions and events and weekend retreats. You'll likely find him sharing his wisdom with those who know a lot less, and they'll be thankful for it. A Christian aims high and keeps focused on heavenly things by engaging and embracing other Christians. Heavenly minded Christians love to be around other imperfect Christians. You certainly don't need to be around exclusively Christians. That'd make evangelism pretty difficult. But Christians love to be around the people of God. Weekly corporate worship keeps you focused on the things above. Hebrews chapter 10 says, Do not forsake the assembly of the saints, but encourage one another. If you're not regularly assembling with the saints, it's virtually impossible to overcome the lusts of the world. How do I know that? Because you're directly disobeying God. Acts 2.42 says of the early church, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. These are all community activities. A heavenly-minded Christian devotes him or herself to assembling with an identifiable local body of Christ. There's no church of one, no church of two. Your family isn't your personal church. You don't have church on the internet. Church is where the body comes together and you worship together and help one another and bear one another's burdens. There are just... Those are others are just excuses to not attend church. Of course, this doesn't mean spiritually minded Christians can never go to a wedding that's out of state. They can't take some time to go to Disney World or that uh, they possibly couldn't even go hunt an alligator when season's open. Um... That, that's not what Hebrews is talking about. He's talking about forsaking the assembly of the saints. Christians love to be around other Christians. And they won't search for carnal excuses to not come to church. But corporate assembly isn't only a group activity. It's not the only one that can help you aim high and keep focused on the things above. One-on-one or group discipleship are some of the finest activities to keep you thinking Jesus. You might believe you don't need discipleship because you already know enough. Or you don't have the time to disciple someone, possibly. You don't want to meet for a weekly lunch, breakfast. I ask you to reconsider. It's tough to survive the chaos of a week in this modern world without meeting with someone at some point. Somewhere, somehow, with another person or a group of people to keep your sights aimed high. Honestly, it doesn't matter to me what type uh, that, you, that you choose as far as getting together with discipleship and, uh, and group activities. But no matter how much we've learned, we need to grow. Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 13, Until I come... Give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you. Timothy was a gifted man. Take pains, no, excuse me. The spiritual gift was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things, be absorbed in them, so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation for both yourself and for those who hear you. Paul tells Timothy that his teaching others is going to benefit Timothy. It says Timothy needed to be benefited from the discipleship process. Discipleship wasn't only intended for the person who was being discipled. I know in this text you might be worried that Timothy might lose his salvation. That's not what it's teaching. Salvation is just simply deliverance from sin. It's possible if you are going carnal that sin is going to invade your life, even if you're a Christian, and you are going to be drawn down into the pits. You could suffer in all kinds of ways. Salvation will deliver you from that. That's another benefit of the discipleship process. Two constants that I have seen in my life as I have worked in discipleship and teaching are this. Number one, without even intending it, I believe I personally receive the greatest benefit when I'm in a relationship where I'm discipling one or a number of people. I can study up, read my commentaries, listen to tapes, enjoy uh, religious videos, study the influence of the biblical languages. And I can come to that study loaded for bear. I can deliver it. I can do it well. And then during that period, someone will stand up in the back and they'll say, did you ever think about such and such? I'm like, wow. Where did that come from? It's good stuff. Go home edified. Go home blessed from those who are in the study group. So discipleship isn't just for the person who is doing the discipling. A second thing that I observed is the more theologically undeveloped a person is that I'm discipling, the more I enjoy it. The newer baby Christian has some great questions to ponder, and they're often the most energetic and joyful to be around. They ask those questions that, for, that Christians who are too well learned would never ask. It just makes you stop to think, and then to praise Jesus. So being with a group is a great time, to, a great way to aim high. Let's take a brief look at verses 3 and 4 of Colossians chapter 3. It says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. We set our minds on heaven, in verse 2, and not on earth, because we died to the life we once lived. We're no longer seeking those earthly distractions because we are hidden in Christ. We are deposited in Christ. We're not citizens of the world. We are citizens of another world. In John 18.36, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this realm. People laughed at Jesus. They said, We don't see any kingdom. They mocked him and they spat upon him. But his kingdom is real. May not be of this earthly realm, but it's real. Jesus reigns over a heavenly realm. But people can't see it because it's spiritual. And it's presently hidden. We're hidden with it. We can't tell by looking around here who is and who isn't in Christ's kingdom. We can look at fruit. We can kind of discern where a person might be. But we don't know. The church of God, the body of Christ, is hidden. It's hidden in Christ. I'm very thankful that Christ was not restrained by any form of gravity. He did not gravitate towards material possess- possessions or filthy lucre. I've always wanted to say that filthy lucre. He said, Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus did not get distracted by temporary earthly things. His life and his ministry were wholly devoted to seeking the things above that pleased his Father. He's our model. Jesus also was not restrained by physical gravity either. In Acts chapter 1, after dying on the cross for our sins and being resurrected from the dead, he was standing with his disciples when he suddenly began to ascend into the clouds, out of sight, into heaven. That's where he went to be seated at the right hand of God. Scripture says when he went there, he was seated. Why did he sit down? Because he had finished his work.